Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online, later on demand, or listening to our podcast, we are so honored that you've decided to join us today. Whether you know it or not, God is ready, willing, and able to breathe new life into your spiritual journey. And I promise you won't want to miss out on that. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. Our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people just like you to become more like Jesus. There is nothing more important in life than your relationship with Him, and we are committed to helping you grow in your love and devotion to Him. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. We're just like you, imperfect people on a journey. We're allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives learning to live like Him, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of His followers, well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking those same questions and looking for answers too, so I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Everything Jewish began with Abraham. Uh, he is the great patriarch of the Jews. Uh, born and raised in what was probably greater Babylonia, which we know as modern-day Iran-ish, at some point in his early adulthood, his father, Terah, decided that the whole family should relocate to the land of Canaan which included his son Abraham, who was known as Abram at the time, Abram's wife Sarai, and Abram's nephew Lot. They got sidetracked when they stopped in Haran for a Diet Coke and never went any further. It was the only McDonald's in the area. Uh, they stayed there until Terah died at the ripe old age of 205 years old. It was sometime after Terah's death, we don't know how long, though we do know that Abraham was 75 years old, that God spoke to Abram, inviting him to continue the journey to Canaan, promising to bless him, to, to make him into a great nation, to make him famous, and to bless all of humankind through him. In faith, Abraham said yes, and took off toward Canaan with Sarai and his nephew Lot. All of his livestock, his hired hands, his slaves, all of his wealth, his silver and gold. He was a very rich man who invested very well in the market. That is, his animals regularly paid dividends, if you catch my drift. And he just got richer and richer. Until finally there wasn't enough water or grassland for his animals and Lot's animals to survive. So they decided to separate. Abram let Lot choose which direction he would go first. And he looked to the left 
and saw fertile ground. Then he looked to the right and he saw desert. And decided then and there that he'd go left. Uncle Abe could have the desert. Lot settled into one of the wealthiest areas in that neck of the woods. Or desert, I guess. Uh, He settled in Sodom. Time passes and the four kings of that area. At the time, kingdoms were more like city-states than countries as we know them. Uh, These four kings of cities decided to rebel against a king who had conquered them 12 years earlier. And this conquering king, along with four of his king friends, crushes the rebellion. He remains king of the hill. And as they are looting the land on their way home, they capture Lot and all of his wealth, except for one of his men who makes a beeline to the desert to find Abram. Abram, who is clearly the kind of person you want to have on your side, drops everything and with 318 of his own trained men heads toward Lot. He defeats the five kings, restores to Lot everything that was Lot's and is the hero of the day. Because that also means the four rebellious kings are free as well. So let's pick up the story as Abraham uh, is returning victorious. Genesis chapter 14 verse 17. After Abram returned from his victory over Keter-Lamer, or however you pronounce that, Keto, and all of his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. If you're, just, if you're joining us for the first time today, we are about halfway through our series in the book of Hebrews that we've called Greater. The Supremacy of Christ through Hebrews. And as I've said all along, the series title gives away the farm. Jesus is greater. Obviously. But what is so obvious to us wasn't nearly so obvious to these second generation Hebrew Christ followers who were at risk of trading in a greater Jesus for the comfort and convenience of the rituals of Judaism. The cultural pressure to return to what was familiar, especially in the face of persecution, was keeping them from growing spiritually. So the author of Hebrews... Although the early church knew who it was, we don't. But the author is trying to help them understand not only that Jesus has no equal, but why Jesus has no equal. So Jesus, as the Son of God, is greater than the angels. By the way, we know that Jesus is God, but the author of Hebrews focuses on his role as the Son of God. So we'll stick with that. He is greater than the angels. Even in his humanity, he is greater than the angels because he accomplished something the angels could never do. He is also greater than Moses, the greatest of the prophets, which would also make him greater than all of the other prophets as well. 
And Jesus is greater than all other high priests. He is the bestest high priest ever. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 5 of Hebrews, one of the reasons he is the greatest high priest is because unlike all the other high priests who are descendants of Aaron, the first Jewish high priest, that would make them high priests in the order of Aaron, Jesus isn't a high priest of that order. He's, he's the high priest of an older order, the order of Melchizedek. If we wanted to put together a list of the, the top five most important people in the Old Testament, I'd guess that we could pretty easily agree that Moses and David would be at the top of the list. Uh, from there, we might debate about Abraham, Joshua, Samuel, Solomon, Noah, Daniel, and maybe even Adam. We might even come up with some of the prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. All of these people certainly deserve to be on the who's who list of most important people in the Old Testament. But one thing is sure, no one would put Melchizedek on that list. We just don't know enough about him. We get four verses in Genesis and one reference to him in Psalm 110. That's it. So why would he make it to the list? This would be true even for the Jews. They were immersed in a religious system that centered around high priests from the order of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the, of the tribe of Levi. As broken and corrupt as that order was at times for centuries, they had served the people of Israel as high priests. And now the author of Hebrews is declaring that the order of Aaron, the priesthood of Aaron, had ended. That's a big deal. And to support his claim, the author has to prove why the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Aaron. So clearly, Melchizedek is more important to the story of Jesus than it seems at first glance. And he might just need to be on our top five list. Now, we're in chapter 7 today, if you want to follow along in your Bible, uh, where the, the author presents three arguments to support his claim about the superiority of Melchizedek. Uh, the first argument is a historical argument based on the interaction of Melchizedek and Abraham that we just read. So let's pick it up in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Now, two things we should note here. First, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 5, Melchizedek was both a king and a priest in the city of Salem, which we know as Jerusalem. Once the nation of Israel was founded, these two office, offices were separated. You had a priest and you had a king, not both in one person. So the order of Aaron had never had the privilege of combining these two offices into one person. Second, Melchizedek was a priest of, as it says, God Most High. Meaning that he was a legitimate priest of our God. No one can claim that he was a counterfeit. He was the real deal. Because Abraham recognized him as the real deal, so should we. Verse 2. Then Abraham 
took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. So let's start with his name. In Bible times, people didn't pick names because there was a Y in it. Names had great significance, which is also why you might see someone's name changed as the result of some crisis or extraordinary encounter. God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. So names meant something, including Melchizedek's, which though as we see it as the king of justice here in the New Living Translation, Melchizedek means king of righteousness in Hebrew. And Salem means peace, which is shalom in Hebrew. Righteousness and peace. Two words often paired together throughout scripture. Significant for us because true peace can only be found when we are justified or made righteous by faith. Two things that came together in Jesus. That's why the New Living Translation translates righteousness as justice. They are closely related biblically like two sides of the same coin. Uh, in the verses that follow, we'll see that the tithe is defined as one-tenth. That's what the word means. The Jews were required to tithe 10% of their crops, herds, and flocks. They brought their tithes physically, brought their, their sheep, camels, cows, bales of hay, to the Levites at the tabernacle, and then later to the temple. Talk about messy church. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to clean up those messes. Jews who had to travel long distances to get to the tabernacle or temple would convert their tithe into money to make the journey easier. And by the way, tithes were separate from their offerings. So by percentage, Jews gave more than 10%. But the concept of tithing didn't originate with the Old Testament law. There is some evidence historically that other nations tithed as well to their gods. So even though Abraham was tithing before the law of Moses was given to the Israelites, it wasn't an abnormal practice. It is also significant, as we see in verse 3, that there is no record of Melchizedek's father or mother or any of his ancestors. No beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Now, clearly, Melchizedek had to have a, a mother and a father. He was a man, after all. But what is unusual is that there is no record of his lineage in the Old Testament. For the Jews, one's genealogy was incredibly important. It's why we see list after list of descendants as we read through the pages of the Old Testament. It's why Matthew begins with Jesus' paternal lineage through Joseph. And Luke includes his maternal lineage through Mary. Priests would have to be able to prove their lineage in order to be priests. But regarding Melchizedek, the Bible is silent. He wasn't an angel. He wasn't a superhuman. He, he wasn't Jesus in disguise. He was a real man. A king and a priest of a real city. But as far as the record is concerned, he wasn't born and he didn't die. We are left with the idea that he is still serving as a high priest. 
which is significant because it gives us a glimpse of what it means to have Jesus as our eternal high priest. For the Jews, the message here is clear. None of the priests of Aaron could claim to serve without a genealogy. None could claim to serve eternally, and none could claim to be both priest and king. None but Jesus. Jesus is greater. Okay, for this next point, let's continue through verse 10. Uh, Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abram, the one who had already received the promise of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. The priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, The seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. Okay, now we're going to get into the weeds for a little bit with this one. First, that Abraham gave his tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek had the power to bless Abraham. A blessing that Abraham willingly received proves that that the authority of this priest king. If Abraham, the patriarch of all that is Jewish, recognized his authority and power, if Abraham legitimized Melchizedek, then he legitimized Melchizedek for all the Jews who would follow. As it says in verse 7, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. Therefore, when it comes to the priests from the order of Aaron... Since they are the fruit of Abraham's loins, many generations removed, they participate in Abraham's acknowledgement of Melchizedek. It it is as if they also tithed to Melchizedek and they also received his blessing. Which means that they also legitimize his authority, making his authority higher than than their own. Now, this same train of thought would not apply to Jesus, who as an eternal being existed before Abraham and was only subject to being in Abraham like the priests of Aaron when he was human. So to sum up this first argument, because Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, he is also greater than all of Abraham's ancestors, including the priests of Aaron. And since Jesus is a high priest from the order of Melchizedek, he too inherits the authority of Melchizedek in the same way that the priests of Aaron inherit theirs through Abraham, making Jesus the greater high priest. 
Now, besides this historical argument for Jesus' authority, the author of Hebrews takes it a step further in these next verses. Uh, Here, he makes the theological argument that Jesus is greater than Aaron. Now, as a side note, for those of you who were, uh, were here for or listened to last week's message, this is why the author paused to talk about growing up beyond the basics spiritually. These are very nuanced arguments that he's making. The good news is that if you really are supposed to be a spiritual toddler and you don't get the nuance, that's okay. This is grown-up food. But if you've been lollygagging your way through your spiritual journey and you should be a grown-up, should be a grown-up Christian by now, then this is why you need to grow up. So you can understand this really important theology. Verse 11. So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based, could have achieved the the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? Now, don't miss the point of this verse. For the Hebrew Christians that this author was writing to, this would be jaw-dropping information. Almost unbelievable. Not only is Melchizedek greater than Aaron, As big as that news would have been to these Jews, but he has also replaced Aaron. The order of Melchizedek has supplanted the order of Aaron. Aaron's priesthood doesn't matter anymore. Now imagine the priests of Aaron reading this. Uh, Your services are no longer required. let's Let's read verse 11 again down through verse 14. So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? And if the priesthood has changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, And Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. So why has the priesthood changed? Well, because the law has changed. Meaning that both the Old Testament law and the Old Testament priesthood were imperfect. The priestly rites were performed by imperfect people. The animal sacrifices didn't cleanse people from sin. They covered their sins. And for a short time at that. So they too were imperfect. Two imperfections will never add up to one perfect, which is what is required. Now the good news is that the Old Testament law was never intended to be eternal. God didn't give Moses the law thinking, man, this system is good and it's going to work. And then realize later that these people sucked at following the law, so he'd better come up with something better. The Old Testament law was always meant to be temporary. It was a placeholder pointing to Jesus before Jesus came on the scene. Proving the need for Jesus before Jesus came on the scene. It was never going to work and God always knew that. It wasn't meant to work. Also, verse 14 points out that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Just as all priests under the Old Testament law came from Aaron's line of the tribe of Levi. All kings of Israel from David on came from the tribe of Judah. So in Jesus, we have a high priest and a king 
in one person, like Melchizedek. He can not only save us, but protect and care for us as well. Now, as a side note, these verses also support the idea that we've, we've talked about quite a lot through the years. The Old Testament law was made up of 615 commands. Jesus narrowed it down to a twofer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Before narrowing it down even further to one simple command. Love each other as I have loved you. We call it the law of love. And it supersedes all 615 Old Testament laws. It raises the bar. What does love require of me will never be less than any of the Old Testament laws. It will always be more. And here's why. You could obey almost all of the Old Testament laws with a sucky attitude. You could obey on the outside and be full of hate on the inside. But what does love require of me begins on the inside before working its way into our external actions. So we don't, we don't follow Old Testament laws. They were replaced when Jesus replaced the priesthood of Aaron. And just like Jesus is greater than Aaron, so is his one law greater than the 615 old ones. We have been freed from the law, which doesn't mean that we have the freedom to sin. Just because we, we have a, a command that says, thou shalt not kill, doesn't mean we get, to, we get to kill. What does love require of me is never murder. Biblical freedom isn't the freedom to do whatever you want. It's the freedom to do good. Freedom to serve and obey God. Not because we have to, to obey the law, but because our heart of stone has been replaced with, one, with a heart that beats in time with the truth. And it wants to sync with the righteousness and peace we find in Jesus. And now we follow a law that will never be replaced. It is as eternal as our new high priest. Verse 15. This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus Christ has accomplished something that the law could never do. He brought a better hope and a more glorious future in the presence of God. We know it will continue for eternity because God has given us his word. And his word cannot be broken. Verse 20. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Now, priests of the order of Aaron became priests through their lineage. Whether they earned it or not, 
deserved it or not, with very few exceptions, the role of high priest passed from father to son. But in Jesus, based on his character, his work on the cross, and by God's oath, we have a high priest forever. The Lord has taken an oath and he will not break his vow. He will not change his mind. It is this oath that gives us confidence in the permanence of our high priest. It has been guaranteed. From a theological standpoint in this section, the author has given us three reasons for the change in priesthood from Aaron to Jesus via Melchizedek. First, the priesthood of Aaron and the law were imperfect. Second, being imperfect, neither could be eternal. And third, God has sworn an oath by, that a new priesthood would be established. We find a fourth theological reason in these next verses. Verse 23. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. So the fourth reason God replaced the priesthood of Aaron with Jesus is that the imperfect old covenant was led by people who died. It was continually interrupted by death. In Jesus, we have an eternal intercessor. Someone who is forever at the right hand of God, God the Father, pleading our case. These last three verses give us now the author's third argument for the greaterness of Jesus. The first was a historical argument based on Melchizedek being greater than Abraham. The second was a theological argument based on Jesus being greater than Aaron. The third argument is based on Jesus being greater than us. Verse 26. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of, of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath. And his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Even the best high priests of Aaron could not meet all of our needs. They simply weren't capable. Jesus is. In his holy perfection, he will never offer us any less than perfect representation before God the Father. And honestly, I need that perfect representation because I fall short of the glory of God. I know you do too. We need a high priest who calls us to live beyond ourselves, to love others well, but also to understand when we fail. And when we fail, doesn't abandon us, but forgives and restores. So why would we choose to follow anyone less? Let's pray. Why would we choose to follow anyone less?
The truth of the matter is that we follow much less all of the time. Every time we allow our lives and the, the crush of, of everything that we're involved in to, to take the place of Jesus as our priority, we choose something less. Our culture pressures us to choose something less. But we need something more. We need Jesus. And so, Father, for those of us who, who are Christ followers, give us the wisdom to know when we are choosing less and the power and courage to choose more in those moments. And, Father, here in this room and watching online, there are people who have never made the decision to follow Jesus at all. It really is an easy thing to decide to follow Jesus. And there is nothing, no, no better decision that you could ever make in your life than to choose to follow him. It, it gets a little more challenging as you begin to give up your self-focused life and begin to, to lead a life that is Jesus-centered. But the decision to follow Jesus isn't that hard. It means you just have to give up on yourself as the answer for all of your problems. You have to acknowledge that the, the very best of your life is still unworthy of a God who is perfect. That your sin has broken that relationship. And then just allowing Jesus to bring you back to life again. If that describes you, then I just want to say today, let today be the day that you say yes. May that be the super part of your day. And if you do, please let me know. I want to help you on your journey. God, for the rest of us, may we follow Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of every day. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's Word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. The people who call Dayspring their home church make this ministry possible. Their faithful giving is proof of God's work in their lives, and they want to pay it forward so you can experience the same life-changing presence of Jesus. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God will give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of His kingdom. 
One easy way to do that is to share this service with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Thank you for liking, sharing, and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. All of these simple acts of kindness on your part, God uses to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.